there and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is called Remember Them, Acknowledge Them. My name is Paula and I'm a bereaved mum. I'm hoping from this podcast to give a safe place for parents who have suffered miscarriage, stillbirth, neonatal death and the termination for medical reasons to talk about their children, remember them and acknowledge them. To discuss the pregnancy, the birth and anything else they wish to do in order to remember their children. Before I start, I need to thank Anchor FM for hosting this podcast for me and distributing it throughout all the usual media outlets where you get your podcast. You'll be able to find this podcast on Spotify, Google, iTunes. Anchor FM is a free broadcasting tool that encompasses all you need to create your podcast and get it out to your audience. So back to the podcast. Did you know that one in four pregnancies will result in a miscarriage? and one in 200 pregnancies will result in a stillbirth. These, however, are not just figures and statistics. They are much wanted, loved and dreamt of children. This podcast will be a safe place for all bereaved parents to share our children's lives and memories. Each episode, I hope to speak with a fellow parent about their child and share their stories. Give their children a voice and allow them to be acknowledged in a world that so few people wish to acknowledge them in. The first episode is my own story. It's about my own little boy, Tyg, who was born sleeping on the 5th of June, 2016. So I suppose in order to start this, um, a little bit of background, I... I am blessed in that I have three living children. Um, I have twin girls who were born prior to Tyg. Now, for me to have my twins uh, was, a, was a long journey. It was a long and difficult journey. Um, we had to go through five years of fertility treatment and investigations. Um, there was nothing obvious that was wrong. It just it was never happening for us. And we don't know why. But eventually in um, 2014, I welcomed these twin little girls into the world. They had been conceived through IVF. Um, so then jump forward a year, they're a year old and myself and the husband say, let's try and see if anything happens. Um, I think he thought in a million years it's never going to happen. It took five years for the girls to be conceived. So I'm grand. You know, it's never going to happen with uh, another baby. Um, but lo and behold, two months later, we find out that we're pregnant and obviously it was a natural conception. So after the initial shock um, and then obviously all the excitement comes, we're, you know, we're settling into this pregnancy and we're kind of going, OK. Um, the pregnancy in itself um, for like, I suppose, for the early pregnancy, for the most part, was it was a standard pregnancy. There was there was morning sickness, there was tiredness. Um, but there wasn't anything to warrant there being problems or to warrant, you know, kind of major complications and major concerns. It was, you know, pretty much a, a run of the mill pregnancy. Um, and, you know, we were delighted um, that, you know, kind of OK, we were quite nervous because we would have at one point had, I think, three under two or something like that. You know, whatever way Tyg was, we knew Tyg was due. Um, at some point in June and my girls had been born in the July so they wouldn't have been two until a few weeks after his birth and you know yeah it was a handful but you know we accepted the challenge 
put it that way. Um, and then at 19 weeks, I attended a routine antenatal appointment um, and I asked the doctor, could he confirm the sex of the child? And he he wrote it on a piece of paper so that it was a surprise to both of us when we came home because my husband had stayed home with the girls while I attended my hospital appointments. And we discovered that we were 99. He was 99 percent certain that we were having a little boy. Um, completely over the moon um, at the prospect of having a boy. Now, obviously, don't get me wrong here. If he had told us that we were having a girl. We would have been just as, as excited as long as the child was healthy, as long as the child, there was no complications. Um, and as long as obviously everything went um, s smoothly enough and stuff like that. And obviously the child was alive. But being, you know, kind of, I don't know whether it's stereotypical or what, to be told that you've already got two girls at home and now you're going to have a little boy. You know, my husband was having, he was planning you know, whatever I would have done when I was pregnant with the girls, he was now having these these plans and these dreams of all these things he was going to do with his son. Um, and it was nice for him, like, you know, to be able to connect in that way. Um, we had, you know, kind of a, f a few names that we were thinking, you know, if, if we have a girl, we'll call the girl this or if we have a boy, we'll call the boy this. So I suppose pretty quickly we did actually settle on the name Tig. And we had originally said Tyke Anthony after my husband's uncle, um, his uncle Tony. Um, and from then on in, while we hadn't revealed the sex of the baby to anyone, I suppose, outside of our house, um, we we ourselves would refer to him as, you know, kind of baby Tyke when we were discussing the pregnancy ourselves or whatever. It was like bump baby Tyke. And obviously we were excited and, you know, kind of starting to buy blue stuff in a house full of pink. Um, and just being excited. But um, so that was fine. And I suppose everything was going as normal as it could be. And at 34 weeks, I had my first bout of complications. <clears throat> and I went to the hospital. I... I'd rang the hospital that, that afternoon or whatever because I hadn't felt baby move um, and was having concerns about feeding him move. And I attended the labour ward and I was I was kept in. I then had some routine tests done the next day. Um, but after a day or so, I was discharged and told, no, everything's fine. Go on home. And then. A couple of days later, at 35 weeks pregnant, I was back in the hospital again saying, look, no, there's definitely something wrong here. I still can't. I can't feel a move again. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not happy here. And again, they did um, routine tests. And again, I was discharged and sent home. Um, now, unfortunately, there are legal matters here, so I can't discuss this in as much detail as I'd like to. Um, I just need to, I suppose, once the legal matters have been um, completed um, and finalised and, you know, all that stuff has been done and dealt with fully, um, I'm just not at liberty to disclose any more, any further information. Um, but I, I left the hospital again, I suppose, 30, kind of 35, 35 and a half weeks. Um, and I just wasn't fully satisfied with the the outcome that had been received or the, you know, the results of the tests that had been given to me. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of sitting there going, look, 
you put your trust in these people's hands you you assume that they you know they're the doctors so if they say everything's fine then you you have to believe that everything's fine um and there isn't really an awful lot that can be done um and so i came home i was due back in two weeks time on the first of june for a routine antenatal appointment in the clinic and so the doctor had said he would see me in two weeks time at the clinic and i went to the clinic um the doctor brought me in um i remember before i went in i was kind of saying to myself right you know i'm 37 weeks pregnant um it's the furthest i've gotten in a pregnancy because my girls were delivered by section at 33 weeks so i had never really experienced braxton hicks i'd obviously never experienced labor and contractions um so to get to 37 weeks was a milestone in itself um i had hoped and I had planned on having a natural birth this time around, provided that obviously it was safe to do so and there was no complications. Um, and so I kind of needed to psych myself up as to, well, what am I actually pushing out here? Um, you know, is it six pounds? Is it eight pounds? Um, you know, give me a ballpark figure. So I remember when I went in at th for the 37 week uh, appointment, asking the doctor, could you tell me roughly how big the baby is? And he wouldn't answer me. He refused to answer the question and told me that that's not something that they, they do. And again, I was dissatisfied because I thought to myself, well, it is something that can be done because it has been done um, both previously on this pregnancy, but also on my on my previous pregnancy. You know, I had so many scans with the twins and at every scan they were able to tell me roughly how big baby was ba or babies were. Um, but again, I went right. Okay, he's not going to tell me. I'm assuming everything is fine. I have to take his word for it, and you know, and and obviously just hope for the best. Focus on the next couple of weeks um, of just cooking the baby for longer, spending the bit of time that I can with the girls because obviously when their brother comes, there will be big changes for them. Um, you know, obviously they were very young, and. It would have been a lot for them to adjust to as well um, and so i go home from the antenatal appointment the first of june wednesday and that the thursday night into the friday morning um about 20 past one in the morning i remember my husband was off at work and i'm lying in the bed asleep and i don't know whether i moved or what happened but i was kind of like as i moved i just got this really sharp pain just under my rib cage and it was enough to take my breath away and I just lay in the bed, frozen, couldn't move um, for what well, felt like ages, but was actually probably only about a minute. And as soon as I was able to kind of, OK, I've caught the breath again, I'm grand. Um, I got up and I, you know, kind of checked that my waters hadn't broke, that there wasn't any spotting or anything like that. And I thought, OK, everything there seems to be fine. So, you know, maybe this was just baby moving and whatever way between him moving and me moving at the same time, he just caught a foot somewhere. Um, um, now, I was quite a, a bit uncomfortable, but, you know, kind of 37 and a half weeks pregnant, you know, you're, it's, it's a given at that stage. So I thought, it's fine. I get back into bed, grand. And I got back into bed, back asleep. That was fine. Um, so when I got up later on that day, um, on the Friday, I remember from about three o'clock, you know, having little pains, but nothing of concern. Um, and it wouldn't have been until maybe 
six o'clock that night that they started to get not saying more intense, but they just I started to notice them kind of being that bit more frequent. Um, now, when I say frequent, like I'm talking about maybe every 10, 15 minutes uh, apart and lasting maybe about 30 seconds to a minute long. Um, so I because I didn't obviously know what they were, I was like, oh, maybe they're Braxton Hicks. Um, you know, maybe they're contractions. I don't know. Um, when I had been in hospital at 34 weeks, I had spoke to a midwife one of the evenings, kind of when she was doing her checks, and I asked her, can you tell me, how do you know you're in labour? Um, I was quite concerned because, you know, I was saying, will I, will I have enough time to get to the hospital? And, you know, what happens if my husband is working and I'm at home? Like, you know, will there be enough time between labour starting for him to get back to me and me to, you know, be able to get off to the hospital and stuff? Um, and she replied to me, you know, look, you'll you'll know when you're in labour because you will just know. Um, there's no kind of there's no question about it. There's no, you know, you'll just know. So I thought, OK, fine. And then she also said to me, and also, though, when you are in labour, you won't be able to hold a conversation. So again, I thought, right, well, look, then this clearly isn't labour because I'm fine. I'm able to talk. You know, I'm able to kind of carry on doing what I need to be doing. Um, and you know it's very very manageable with this pain um so that night I suppose this was Friday the 3rd of June um my husband goes off to work again about six o'clock and I can remember I was sitting out in the garden it was a lovely evening and um I got up to I, I I felt sick all of a sudden I felt really sick and I just kind of got up to go and um go back into the house um but instead I ended up thrown up in the garden beside the car um and I didn't think there was anything I wasn't concerned because I had read that you know sometimes some women in the onset of labor will you know will vomit so I thought well maybe this is it maybe this is it happening for me and I'm actually going to start vomiting now and lo and behold I'll start labor and this baby's going to be coming and you know everything was happy and excited I didn't necessarily ring my husband because I didn't want to concern him because again I was saying well look the pains aren't that bad he's not that far away if I do need to ring him there'll be time to get him home um so I continued whatever I was doing that evening I put the children to bed um and it was about nine o'clock I rang the hospital saying look I'm just ringing you because I'm having these pains they've kind of been going since six o'clock semi-regular um I also vomited um but what I'm more concerned about is the fact that my previous delivery was by section and I obviously don't want to be putting any pressure on my scar if this is a contraction and the midwife was lovely or whatever and we were speaking and she said to me look if you're not overly concerned she goes come in if you want to but if you're not overly concerned um it might be just Braxton Hicks so you know maybe try have a shower have a bath and have a bit of a rest and see will they ease up so I went and I did that and I uh, must have fallen asleep or whatever but I had a bit of a rest anyway and the next morning my husband came home about four o'clock half four in the morning and I said to him I woke up and I said to him you know look I said I'm still having these pains um you know I'm not I'm not concerned that there's something wrong with the baby. I'm not concerned that there's something necessarily wrong with the pregnancy. I'm more concerned about my scar and any potential pressure that's been put on there. So we agreed that we'd ring the hospital again. Um, and I was speaking to the same midwife. 
Um, and again, she said to me, look, maybe then just come in and, you know, we'll we'll check you out and we'll make sure that the scar is OK just to be on the safe side. Um, and I suppose this is how kind of a, not saying unconcerned I was, but this is how like I, I didn't in a million years think that there was anything that would warrant emergency because she asked me, did I need an ambulance and I said to her look no I live 15 minutes away from the hospital Um, it's a bank holiday Saturday it's five o'clock in the morning there isn't going to be anything on the roads Um, I'll drive myself in the husband will stay at home with the other kids and if need be then you know I can obviously ring him to get somebody to come and sit with them and he can follow me in but you know I'm going like I'm sure it could be fine and so off I went into the hospital Um, as I say kind of I was so secretly excited because I thought to myself like I had my bag in the car and I thought to myself what if this is it what if I'm going to now go into this hospital and I'm not going to come home until I have my little boy in my arms um and I off I went in and down into the labor ward and you know you're walking through the labor ward and you can hear all these babies crying and it just really makes it so real that you're thinking this is it now and I'm going to get to have my baby I'm going to get to see my baby um, and I'm chatting with the midwives and down we go to the labour ward. So I get down to the labour ward and the nurse, the midwife, um, proceeds to, you know, examine me. And she tries with the handheld Doppler to locate Tyke's heartbeat. And she can't find it, but we're not overly concerned. We're just thinking, well, you know, with the pains that I'm having and, you know, kind of maybe we just don't know his position. Um, she still can't find it. She then tries with the actual CTG monitor and can't find it. And at that stage, I'm, I'm, I'm silently panicking. Um, I remember that the registrar doctor, who I would have had a fantastic relationship with, um came into the room and a senior midwife came into the room and they try and I asked could I contact my husband and I was told to just hang on hang on another bit and I was like okay um I was explaining to them that you know look I need to contact if he needs to come in we obviously need to organize somebody to mind our other children like you know it's six o'clock in the morning <laughs> we live in the middle of nowhere um you know, we need to try and organise someone to come and just sit with them. Um, so the registrar then brings in a um, portable um, ultrasound machine and she's putting that on and I can see the image as clear as day. I can see and I can make, I've had that many scans done. You know, I can make out everything on it, including the small heart that's not beaten and I know I know there's no heartbeat and I know he's gone but I still am in denial and I'm thinking no it's wrong um at this point she tells me to contact my husband and so I kind of rang my husband uh rang a neighbor to come and sit with the children and uh got told my husband to get here as quick as he could um and they paid the consultant on call to come in and obviously confirm the news. Um, so 
I'm brought to the early pregnancy unit in the hospital um, where they have obviously the proper large um, ultrasound machines. Um, and I think like, it, it was probably only like a minute. Um, but I remember telling them that, you know, my husband is on the way. He's literally just parking his car. Um, and like it wouldn't take that long to go from the car park to the maternity section of this hospital. Um, but for some reason, the doctors decided not to wait. And so they started scanning me and they proceeded to say that the, the bladder was full, um, but there was no movement. There was no heartbeat. Baby was gone. And OK, for all intents and purposes, I was on my own in that room. There was two midwives and two doctors, but to me, I was on my own. These were strangers, um, regardless of a relationship I have with them. They weren't my husband. Um, I asked the doctor, where was he gone? Um, I then proceeded to say, well, you know, could you take him out and shock him? In my mind, he had a full bladder, so he wasn't dead very long. Um, you know, normally I thought, <laughs> too much information here, but most people after they die will empty their bowels and bladder. I thought, well, he hasn't emptied his bladder, so therefore he must have only just died. Um, and I thought, okay, can you take him out and can you shock his heart back? What, what's wrong with that? I didn't think it was an unreasonable request. But they all literally stood there looking at me as if I was completely batshit crazy. Um, at this point, there's a knock on the door and it's my husband. And I sat up off the bed, looked at him and said, he's dead. And began to wail and cry. And so um, it was confirmed at that stage that, yes, my son was dead. And we were brought back to the maternity ward. So I went back to the labour ward and um, kind of, you know, sat there and listened to the doctor give me my options. Um, it was a bank holiday weekend um, and so I could, I had the options of either having a section there and then or going home to see what happens and if nothing had happened by um, the bank holiday Monday I would then ring in order to have a section on the Tuesday and I remember saying to them at the time I wasn't ready to say goodbye to him and so I decided that I would come home and just wait and see um, so I came back home I think at this stage it could have been about maybe 10 o'clock in the morning and so I came home and my sister had come to mind my children um, and I can remember literally just walking from one room to another around my house in a daze and I didn't know what I was doing um, I, I tried to eat some toast um, but I literally was just I was just walking around in this complete daze um, my husband had decided he was going to go to work that night, um, or that day, I should say. I said to him, look, nothing's going to happen. Go to work and, you know, 
if my pains get worse I'll ring you and obviously you can come and get me but I'm gonna go and stay at my sister's house now so that if that happens you know I'm, I'm with somebody the children are with somebody it could be fine like we can't save them so what's the point um and that was fine so as he was packing up cars and whatnot with all the paraphernalia that's needed I'm again walking around the garden and I think at this stage it could have been maybe half 11 12 o'clock and my sister was looking at me and she says I think your pains are getting worse you know I think the labor is that bit more intense now so you know maybe you should ring the hospital just to see so I rang them and they agreed I should come back in and off I go in again to the hospital into the labor ward um obviously there's nothing done this time to check for a harpy and to check on the baby and instead the ctg monitor is just put on to um check for my contractions um the doctor confirms that i am indeed in labor and i'm you know i think i was two centimeters dilated and i was told okay you're in labor look we're gonna keep you here so you know we'll get you set up in a room on your own and sure we'll just kind of wade it through um and as i said this was it was like two or three o'clock on the saturday afternoon um the fourth of june at this stage and i'd been in labor since maybe six o'clock the previous the previous night so off i go and like i think it still hadn't hit me that i was not only was I in labour, but that I was actually going to have a dead baby. Oh, this is harder than I thought. I thought five years on, I'm okay to talk about this, but clearly not. Um, I don't think it hit me. I think in my head, I still thought they're wrong. He's going to come out and he's going to be fine. And so the labour progressed slow and surely, slow and surely. And about seven o'clock that night, I... Um, I was off, I was convinced or um, kind of more encouraged to have an epidural. Um, I had wanted a natural birth and I had wanted a drug-free birth. Um, but instead, the midwife said, look, if it's going to be painful and it's going to be sore, go for the epidural because at the end of this, there is no happy ending. And so I went for the epidural. <laughs> And that was grand or whatever. I was, you know, sitting on the bed waiting. And then at, I think, about one o'clock um, in the morning, ten past one, on the Sunday morning, uh, the 5th of June, I was told, OK, we're ready for you to start pushing. And within half an hour, my son was born. And I remember, I remember looking down as, because I had been, not warned, but we had been advised that there could be skin slippage, there could be discoloration, um, and there could be some, not scarring as such, but, you know, just blemishes as a result of the child sitting in the amniotic fluid um, while he was deceased. And... So, you know, kind of, I wasn't sure how he would look. But I remember as he came out looking and I said, oh, my God. To which my husband was like, 
what's wrong. He hadn't really been looking because like that, he was quite nervous and scared as to what he would see. And I said to him, absolutely nothing is wrong. He's perfect. And my husband turned and took one look at his son and collapsed. And then um, they obviously cut the cord, took him away, um, weighed him and did, you know, kind of what they had to do or whatever. And I, like, it was a matter of minutes from when they, before they handed him back to me. And I can remember looking at him and he just looked like he was asleep. He just looked like any newborn baby who was asleep. He was, he was pink. Um, he, he looked like a normal child. He had 10 fingers, 10 toes. Everything was in the perfect place that it should be in. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, you know, will I, I had obviously wanted to breastfeed. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, you hear all these things about breast milk and how it's magic and, you know, kind of all these things. And again, I thought to myself, like, will I just try and feed him and maybe he'll come back to life. And it was like as if I had this not out of body experience, but like one side of me was saying, give him breast milk and he might come back to life. And the other side of me is saying, and if you do that, they're going to sign you into the psychiatric ward. Because that is just crazy. It's not going to happen. He's dead. You need to accept it. And I just couldn't. Like, I just, I kept thinking to myself, going, no, he's going to wake up. They're wrong. He's going to wake up. Um, so they, they wrapped him up and my husband kind of took him and held him for a bit while I was cleaned up or whatever. Um, and we organised for the hospital chaplain to come in and just bless him and give him his name and um, as he said as I said we decided that we would call him after his father so he was Tyke Jonathan um, and then we were brought down to our room and we got to spend a couple of nights with him um, now I know it's not the hospital's fault um, I suppose this is just a, a side note for, you know, kind of if anyone is listening to this that hasn't experienced a bereavement. Um, but basically I was put onto the maternity ward. Yes, I was in my own room, um, but all the rooms around me and all the people around me had newborn babies who were screaming and crying and happy and everyone that came and went up and down that ward was so, so happy. And I was stuck in the middle of this um, with a dead baby. Um, I remember at the time, the hospital, the staff, anytime I tried to leave my room, just to kind of go to the water fountain and fill up my bottle, or just to literally say, look, you know what, I'm gonna just go and stretch my legs and walk down the corridor. Um, they'd immediately like kind of usher me back to my room. Um, and it was as if like, you know, kind of, yes, I know that they were concerned about my mental health and concerned about how I would react if I saw a living baby. But I, I honestly don't know whether it was shock or adrenaline or what, but I kept kind of looking at them saying, I'm fine. Like, I'm not going to rob someone's baby. I'm not going to cry in front of somebody. 
or you know certainly not intentionally cry in front of them because I don't want to ruin their happiness just because I didn't get to have mine and so for the three days that I was in hospital I was stuck in this room <laughs> pretty much kind of nothing on my own I had whatever visitors and stuff but I was stuck in this room um, and I suppose you know that was that um, thankfully through the help of Felicon, um, who are an amazing, amazing charity. We were given a cuddle cot or a cold cot, which um, is, I suppose, does what it says on the tin. Um, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's a Moses basket that has a cooler blanket in the bottom that runs off an electric motor. And this is, the child literally sleeps, in inverted commas, but the child sleeps in this cot and stays in this cot pretty much, you know, 24-7, but as long as you're not holding him or her, um, and it preserves the body. So you're able to spend time with your child. And so I had, obviously, the cuddle cot the Sunday and the Monday. And on the Tuesday morning, Tig was sent for autopsy. He came back to us on the Wednesday evening and again the hospital kindly let us stay in the hospital overnight with the cuddle cot so that we got to spend another bit of time with him and we buried him on the Thursday morning so the 9th of June was his funeral Um. yeah so um So how am I now after delivery? Um, it's five years since I've had my son. He will be five on the 5th of June. And in one way, I suppose people would say, you know, five years is a long time. And, you know, not saying you should be over it or whatever. I think there are an element of people who will say to me, like, it's five years, you should be over it. Um, you know, you, you should be moved on by now and you know not not the, the the mess that I find myself in sometimes um and the thing is and the thing that I say to them is that it's not that the grief of losing a child is different all grief is all grief is different all baby loss is different um I've lost my mother and the grief that I have for her death to the grief that I have for Tykes is completely different and as awful as this sounds I would bury my mother 10 times over again than have to bury my child but that's just me and that's just my opinion and I am not in any way um discounting people's opinion people's uh, grief for the loss of their parents or their spouse or anyone else um, everyone deals differently with grief um, I just found and I do just find this journey so, so hard. It's such an uphill battle. There isn't a day that goes past that I don't think of him. And even on, you know, the happiest days, he's always, always there in my mind. There is always the what ifs. Um, as I say, he is five years old this year. He should be starting school in September. Um, and like it would have been such such 
a great day to go and you know bring him off to school um with his new little school bag i i'm assuming it would be like paw patrol or pj masks or one of those things and you know his older sisters being so proud of their little brother starting school with them um and that's a milestone that i'll never get um like many other milestones that as you know a bereaved mum we don't get um people say and there is this kind of saying that like you know when you lose a baby you don't just lose a baby you lose that child's future i've lost his first smile i've lost his first word his first tooth his first step uh, his first day at school his you know communion confirmation going to college um all the things that you like when you get pregnant and you see those two blue lines or pink lines or whatever it is that's looking back at you for me anyway i literally have that entire life on a stick mapped out um right up until you know kind of when i'm in a nursing home and my kids are coming to visit me like um everything is just mapped out for them and for it to be just taken away and to be told sorry there's no heartbeat your baby's dead you now have to think that all of those memories that you've tried to create they're gone but there isn't even any memories to replace them with because I never got to see his eyes I never got to see him smile I never got to hear his voice and while I know he knows I love him I never got to tell him in person with him in my arms I love you son and for me to see his reaction um, and that is such there are things that I'm going to carry with me forever that I never got to do um, so I suppose for anyone listening um, for anyone listening and you know anyone that asks the question like you know how are you now the one word answer for that is I'm surviving and some days I thrive and some days I struggle um, and I suppose this is this is my life you know but I will keep him with me forever he is part of my family he is my son um, and I will continue to remember him and I will continue to acknowledge him um, people have often said you know with grief that you know there's a there's a time limit on it and you know I should be I remember when it was a year to the day of Tyke's funeral and I was at a play centre with a friend and her children and I was triggered I met somebody who was pregnant and they told me they were having a boy and I would have gotten not not obviously upset but just a little bit like you know while I'm delighted for you and I wish you so much success and I hope that you never have to go through this I'm jealous of the fact that you get your little boy and I didn't get mine and I remember my friend saying to me like will you always be like this and I kind of thought to myself what do you mean like you know will I always be sad that my son is dead yes well, I always have times where, you know, the grief will catch me off guard and I will get upset. Yes. 
Um, and I don't see what's wrong with that. And her response was, you know, well, you need to get over it. Um, you need to get your life back um, and you need to be happy again. And I, I, I got very angry at it, you know, and um, I, I got upset and I got angry at it because like this is my life. And I am forevermore a, you know, I'm a bereaved parent. I have four children and one of them is not here. And I can't be happy that he is not here. I can't live my life and, you know, be 100% happy because there's a huge part of me that is missing. Um, but I remember about a year ago watching, um, it was like a YouTube TED talk. And in this talk, um, it was some American lady who had lost her husband. And she was talking about how people had said to her, you need to get your life back. You need to move on. You need to be happy and stop, you know, going around moping or whatever. And she responded to these people saying, well, no, I'm sorry, but we don't get over it. Um, we don't move on. We move forward. And in moving forward, we take our children or our loved ones with us. And so that's what I'm doing and I'm vowing to do in that I I move forward every day. Some days I take giant steps and other days I take baby steps, but I move forward every day and I take all my children with me, including Tig. Um, he is forever a part of our family. He is remembered every day um, and he is included in all of our celebrations every year. Um, so yeah, all we can do is just move forward. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast and sharing my story with you. If you've been affected by any of this content, please know that firstly, I am so truly, truly sorry that you find yourself navigating this world, but that also you are not alone. There are many support groups with amazing supportive people who have become a family to me. I have listed some of these groups and their contact details in the footnotes to this episode. I hope you can join me again on the next episode of the podcast when I'll be speaking with Caroline, who is mum to Stephen. In the meantime, let's acknowledge them and remember them.